All right, so welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have James K. A. Smith, who's the professor of philosophy at Calvin University, and he's the author of several books, including Desiring the Kingdom and his latest, How to Inhabit Time. So, Jamie, thanks for coming on. Yeah, great to talk to you. Thank you. So um, I wanted to focus on Desiring the Kingdom, which is one of my favorites amongst your many books. And you Thank build you. a lot on the, the philosophy of Charles, Charles Taylor, who's one of again, one of my other favorites. And you say some interesting things about his concepts of you know, social imaginaries versus intellectual worldview. So for those who are unfamiliar, can you break down those ideas? Yeah, I found this, and, and um, Taylor kind of lifts this term from another theorist named Benedict Anderson. But mm -hmm. I think the way that Taylor unpacks it is particularly fruitful. So think of it this way. He's distinguishing between, say, uh, the way we think about the world, which is kind of at this theory driven or, you know, kind of highly cognitive and discursive way of understanding the world. But he distinguishes that then from what he calls a social imaginary, which is something more like having a feel for the world. It's a it's a kind of in in other philosophical conversations, we would say this is the distinction between knowing that something is true and knowing how to be or how to do something. So know that knowing that versus know how. A social imaginary is kind of this feel for the world that we kind of carry in our bones rather than discursively rationalize in our intellect mm -hmm. and everyone has one so um we all are sort of governed by social imaginaries it's this it's this slightly more inchoate but nonetheless influential take on sort of what what a good life is and what social relations expect of us and what the uh, um, our hope is and what we think happiness looks like. And so this social imaginary, um, he calls it an imaginary because it's really on this register of the imagination rather than the more kind of logical or cognitive register of the intellect. And I think that's very significant. Taylor, maybe another way of saying it is Taylor thinks that we are much more shaped by the stories we've absorbed and the stories we inhabit than the ideas and beliefs and doctrines that we might ascribe to. Because that's the other thing that becomes interesting is Taylor suggests, you know, you can actually have a disconnect mm -hmm. between what you theorize, what you think your doctrinal beliefs are, so to speak, and what social imaginary really yeah. governs your being in the world and i think it's 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 recognizing uh the significance of these kind of pre-intellectual facets of who we are um and that those however are still culturally trained and shaped taylor says it, social imaginaries are carried in images, stories, myths, legends, mm -hmm. and that that might all sound like kind of ancient, you know, sort of uh, um, medieval language almost. But if you think of what movies do to us, what music does to us, what what stories and novels do to us, that's kind of how we absorb this these social imaginaries. Yeah. And you carry that idea into the, the realm of education, specifically talking within the religious context, because a lot of institutions will fall back on giving students the right ideas, forming their intellects, their minds. And you're challenging that saying that education of education of the intellect is not 
sufficient because we're not just brains we're, we're bodies we have hearts we have you know the flesh we're incarnate spirits and you know when we're when we're trying to structure education when we're thinking about the curricula we have to think about how does the culture of the school how do the practices that we you know that we use really form the person in their entirety so can you can you say a little bit more about social imaginaries and educational context yeah so if you if you think of it this way maybe another way not to step back but another mm -hmm. way of of appreciating why taylor talks about social imaginaries is it's almost like he's he's shifting the center of gravity from our uh, sometimes over prioritizing or overestimating the significance of our beliefs and ideas. Mm -hmm. And he's sort of right. So we, we tend to have, especially people who are theorists of say religion and so on, we tend to have this kind of inflated view of how significant people's beliefs and ideas and doctrines are. And Taylor is kind of shifting the center of gravity and saying, well, actually what more governs how people live is the social imaginaries that they are living into the stories that they are living into which is why then um uh formation education can't be just about you know fueling the intellect it can't be just sort of depositing the right ideas and beliefs into a mind a, a truly formative and transformative education has to be one that gets hold of and shapes a social imaginary. And that means uh, uh, such an education has to be um, tactile, kinetic, uh, uh, it has to be communal, it has to be incarnate, it has to be narrative, uh, it has to have rituals uh, that are sort of carrying a story that is that is shaping people. And um, if, so, so on the one hand, you could start saying, this would maybe change the way you think about what counts as curriculum at a school yeah right if if you if you appreciate the picture of the person that is emerging here at an educational institution that truly wants to educate in terms of forming people there is no extracurricular yeah. Do you know I mean there's no yeah. there's no there's yeah, not no, even really co-curricular there's mm -hmm. all of this is a piece in shaping the kinds of people that we are coming. But if you flip it by the, the, and maybe this is part of what you wanna talk about, but what this also means though, is education happens in all kinds of places that aren't called schools. Exactly, yep. And that leads us to the, the concept of cultural liturgies that you, you write extensively about. So yeah, for those who don't know, how would you define cultural liturgies? What do you mean by this term? Yeah, so let let's let's uh, let's start with liturgy because obviously that sounds like a very churchy religious word. Right. I'm 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 imagining small l. You know, I'm stretching the term. For me, a liturgy is the repertoire of um, social communal rituals that we are embedded in. That doesn't just aren't isn't just a liturgy isn't just something that you do. It's doing something to you. Yeah. It's shaping you. It's forming you. It's transforming you. Mm -hmm. And 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 really, what based on our conversation here, we could say is a liturgy is a social imaginary shaping repertoire of practices and rituals. Okay, so if that's what a liturgy is, liturgies clearly are not constricted to religious sanctuaries and buildings and mm -hmm. communities because. Um, social imaginaries 
are shaped by all kinds of cultural rhythms and practices that such that there are kind of cultural liturgies everywhere. Um, but to see them, you kind of have to put on a different lens of cultural mm -hmm. analysis, right? So you put on a different set of, let's call it lenses of liturgical analysis, and you start looking around and you're now you're not analyzing culture just to sort of see what are the messages that are being traded. It's more like what are the rhythms and rituals and repertoires yeah. that people are immersed in over and over and over again that carry a story, that, 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 that uh, uh, carry a narrative about what human flourishing is. And insofar as we give ourselves over to those practices, we are being trained, we're being educated, we're being shaped, um, we're being liturgically disciplined would be another way of saying it. Yeah, and just does that help? I don't know if that's a good no. Yeah, because it's I think this highlights the fact that, as you mentioned in the book, that a lot of the things that we are told are so-called neutral experiences or neutral claims. I mean, there's no such thing as neutrality. Everything shapes us. Everything does something to us in a way. Changes our worldview, our sense of reality. And no, I just I wanted to say from my own experience. Um, I grew up mainly in the Greek Orthodox Church, so I would attend the Divine Liturgy. And honestly, like I was never taught on an intellectual level the meaning behind things that we were doing. I was never taught like the theology of it. It was just something I was present at. And as I grew up, I started to see that the liturgy really did shape my sense of reality, the sense of mystery, the sense of aesthetic beauty um, did play a role in, I don't know, how I started to view the world. But on the other hand, non-explicitly non religious things that I would engage in, whether the kind of music that I was into, um, I don't know, you talk about going shopping as, at a mall as a form of liturgy, um, going to concerts, going to the gym even. These seemingly mundane, neutral things are not as neutral as we think because they are liturgical in a sense. They do shape us. They do something to us. So I, what's concerning though is the fact that like we're not really taught to read these experiences through that lens. So we end up absorbing a lot of things that perhaps we don't really agree with or think are really good for us. So, and I think that's the deceptive thing behind uh, the claim to neutrality. And, and part of it, part of what helped me to understand that was reading your work, but I also wanted to mention, um, I started reading William T. Kavanaugh who came on the podcast a little yes. while ago. And really? one, of, one of my favorite things, so like you have torture in the Eucharist, you have the theopolitical imagination, but one of his best short articles was one about Amazon and how Amazon has become this, this new kind of uh, temple in a way where we, we have these uh, seemingly magical experiences of fulfillment of desire. And that's why they even call them, you know, fulfillment centers. So it was reading, yes. but it was also reading Camille Paglia and her take on, um, mm. on pop culture, on music, because she reads it through this kind of, you know, decadent pagan lens, but everything for her also is liturgical. So no, it's just, yep. it's interesting once you find people who teach you to read through that lens, but without that, um, again, it's like, it's deceptive. You think everything's neutral, nothing's happening, but really your your soul is being shaped by little everyday experiences. Yeah, yeah. And, and in, in my experience, um, let's say for, for uh, folks who do have uh, a religious practice of mm -hmm. the sort, like for example, you described growing up, I think uh, in many cases, it's recognizing the sort of liturgical power yeah. of these other cultural practices kind of helps them come back to their religious practice with a new appreciation for why we do what we do 
when we gather in our community. Um, because yeah, I think that's exactly right. That um, I, I think a lot of cultural assimilation to kind of the default modes of late modern capitalist society happens precisely because people don't see what's at stake yeah. in their ritual participation in the rhythms of, of uh, um, culture. They, they maybe have been equipped to like know what they shouldn't believe, mm -hmm. but they haven't been equipped to recognize what they should be careful about practicing. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think it's, it's just that, and this isn't, a, of course, this is never supposed to be a recipe for some kind of retreat or withdrawal mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, hiding from culture as, as, you know, uh, um, escape. It's, it's just about a kind of eyes wide open appreciation for how yeah. this happens. Yeah, and it's interesting you use the word assimilation because, I don't know, one of the things that's been very much on my mind is the fact that, at least for people who are coming from immigrant families, um, the process of assimilating to American culture, it it profoundly shapes, again, your your sense of self, your sense of identity, sense of reality. And I like I think about my my grandparents who, who came from Greece in what, the 50s or 60s, and I grew up with this different orientation towards reality because of these you know small cultural liturgies from the way they prepared food the way they would have host people at the house the way they would go shopping was different and yet i saw you know, as i got older there was this attempt to assimilate to this kind of american the american dream the kind of capitalist consumerist ideal so they're kind of caught between cultural liturgies um and again it's like i find it very helpful to kind of not to retreat, not to run away from that yeah. American ideal, yeah. but to understand like where my roots come from and that there's a richness within these, you know, within our different ethnic practices and rituals. And if we, if we're only, if we make an idol out of this ideal of assimilation, becoming quote unquote true American, something is lost, you know? Yeah. I, and I, and I think it's liberating to just recognize that I am always multiply immersed in contested cultural liturgies. And that, let's just say that that's kind of part of the human condition as we experience it right now. And I would rather just have a kind of spiritual realism about that rather than say like, because sometimes what happens is, you know, you give people this tool of a kind of liturgical analysis of culture and all of a sudden they put on these lenses and they're like, oh, shit. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, mm -hmm. it, it's happening yeah, everywhere. It is scary. And then they it freak is... out and they're like, oh, no, I'm a, and I was like, no, it's all relax. But it's like, yeah, it's good. This is kind of a critical reflective capacity that we have to appreciate what's at stake. So this isn't neutral and benign, you know, uh, keep your eyes wide open. But you can also think about how do I cultivate different centers of gravity in my life, right? What does it look like for me to lean into some practices more intentionally, almost as countermeasures, mm -hmm. because I know I'm going to be thrown into these other practices. Um, but I, I do think for institutional leaders of different sorts, it's there's another layer of criticism or another layer of intentionality because for those who are leaders who are responsible for shaping the ethos of institutions mm -hmm. this insight should should birth new principled intentionality about how to cultivate yeah. 
uh, a way of life that and, and rhythms and patterns and repertoires that we think accord with what we think and believe and confess that human flourishing looks like what, whatever that might be right, right. Um, it's the it's the illusion of neutrality that often smuggles in deformative mm-hmm. modes of liturgical practice that that can also be very dehumanizing do you know so like to take bill kavanaugh's example mm-hmm. if, if you just think oh um amazon is a distribution system then you'll you'll be naive about the way in which inculcated into a whole set of modes and expectations in terms of what you think flourishing and happiness and meaning look like not to mention that you'll be blind to you know what this means for truck drivers and what this means for manufacturing and things like that yeah and one of the the big examples that you refer to a lot is the capacity of music to to shape our yeah our sense of the world a sense of self I was wondering, could you like talk about some of your own experience? Because I know you know you often write about the the musicians and the you know the songs that inspire you. So how has yeah. music kind of been a liturgical experience in your own life, for better or for worse? Yeah. So, uh, I, um, the first thing I, I have to say is I am not a musician myself at all, and kind of like resent that my parents never made me take piano or guitar. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. Right? I mean, I I think it must be an incredible thing to like generate music i I would love that was true maybe because that's the case i do think the sonic environment of music is really really significant and important for me and and i i sort of i spend a lot of time kind of as a writer the music i'm listening to as i'm writing is curated with some intentionality because i totally believe that that is that that is conducive to different modes of creativity. So I think that's important. But if at the risk of sounding a little bit maybe too earnest or trite, uh, um, I'll tell you one example I've I've thought of recently because I've been reading um, Bono's new um, okay. yeah. memoir called Surrender. So I'm I should tell you I'm a white dude who's 52, came of age very much in the 80s, yeah. and uh, Joshua Tree, the album Joshua Tree, which is not U2's probably best album, but it is a very, very significant album for me. Because now that I look back, I, I was not raised in a religious home or community, and I, I uh, converted to Christian faith uh, when I was 18. And I, when I look back now, I honestly believe that Joshua Tree was a kind of like preamble to faith, because it was so much... Um, it's an album of deep longing, right? Yeah. Like I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And uh, there, there's just this, it's such an incredible mix of yearning and not reaching. Uh, and and I really honestly believe that that sort of like tilled the soil of my heart in a way uh, so that then when uh, um, sort of a more proper encounter with God, if you will, happened later, it was like, I was kind of prepared for it in a way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I relate very much because, again, even though I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church, I was never really formed to, you know, to understand the journey of faith, how, what it means to have a relationship with God. And for me, it was mostly like R&B, soul music. And especially when you consider the history mm. rooted in gospel music and the spirituals of enslaved people. So there's this real sense of suffering, but also this hope that, there is salvation, there is an answer, there is a meaning to our suffering. 
And even though that may not be the theme, uh, the thematic content of most soul singers today, like you still feel, again, in that yes. liturgical sense, it's formed by that awareness of suffering and redemption. So I, I don't know, like at a time when I knew I needed some ultimate form of meaning, but didn't really have the language to express it, the music itself was the way that I, that, that's the way I expressed it, that in a, in, a, in, a, in a form became a prayer in itself. Um, so little did I realize yes. what was happening, but as I, as time went on, I realized like there's something profoundly liturgical, not just about the music, but the experience of whether it's watching a video, going to see a live performance at a concert. And I know, and you write about that, like the experience of a rock concert as a liturgy in itself, which I don't know, I think a lot of us feel that we experience it, but again, we lack the language to express what's going on in those moments. Right. No, I, that's beautiful. And I, I your, your point brings out another facet of what we're talking about in these liturgies and these cultural mm -hmm. liturgies which is um it's all about form actually right like it's not that these are just little containers for a message you mm -hmm. know content it's actually the 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 way of being yeah. the the narrative vision is carried in the form itself and so as you say there's in in, in it's not just about lyrics right it's about the kind of crucible of that musical form and and the the valleys that it takes a heart through mm -hmm. towards hope um and that is that's that's always doing something to us on a register that we can never ever quite articulate that, that's another reason why i love taylor's notion of the social imaginary is because um sometimes he, he refers to a German philosopher named Martin Heidegger and he says, this is a bit like what Heidegger means when he says, there is a kind of understanding we have that can't be translated into knowledge, yeah. right? And it's this sort of, uh, um, it's irreducible. There's something irreducible. There's a kind of knowing here, a kind of understanding that can't ever be translated into mm -hmm. discursive propositional articulation. And I, I think that's really, beautiful and powerful um, yeah. it also explains why forms of things are so significant so outside of music which other cultural liturgies can you say shaped your sense of reality um so i'm i it won't surprise you that for me many of them are about the arts mm -hmm. so um i edit a, a literary and arts quarterly called image journal and mostly that's because i believe the arts are the engine of the, the, they speak directly to the imagination. So I would say film, um, film for me is, um, it's a great example because on the one hand, it is, it's kind of the super medium <laughs> in a way, right? Cause you get music, you get visual, you get narrative, you get a story, you get drama. And uh, I, I think film um, is the myth-making of our age and um for good and ill right for good and ill, precisely because film is so powerful if if we are telling stories of domination and consumption over and over and over again that's kind of you know what we're drinking in i, I tend to gravitate to more um you know uh i'm a big fan of kind of slow cinema paul schrader andre tarkovsky uh, um uh uh, Roma a few years ago yep. was just yeah. such an incredible, incredible film oh, and yeah. tells such a powerful story. And and back to our conversation about form, 
even the experience of a black and white film mm -hmm. uh, today is doing something to us. So I, I think film is really significant and, and literature. Um, I love poetry. I think poetry doesn't often function in quite the same liturgical power, it seems to me, though it can be part of it. But novels, you know, novels take you into a world. Yeah. And, and it, isn't it amazing how, you know, there are characters from novels who live with you mm -hmm. more closely than friends you used to have 20 years ago. And, and you know, they, they can work as exemplars. Like sometimes what happens in a, in a novel is you read something and there's, there's, it almost becomes aspirational for you because mm -hmm. now you, somebody has shown a way of living a, a form of life and you're like, that's, I, I want to be that kind of person. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the arts are a really, really crucial uh, driver yeah. of all this yeah and I, I definitely feel the same way about novels because for me what's always been helpful is that novel depicts often just everyday mundane scenes in people's lives but the author imbues it with this with a sense of mystery a sense of those mundane things being filled with meaning and I find that like it enables me to appreciate that sense of mystery, a sense of beauty in boring everyday things that I do because I think back to the way the author described it in whatever novel um, so I definitely see that within the arts, within yeah. literature. Um, but the other thing I was going to ask, you talk about other things that are much more mundane, like shopping at the mall, going food shopping, going even right. to the hospital. Um, things, again, that you wouldn't think at all are shaping our sense of truth, our sense of reality. So can you say something about those more like everyday kinds of experiences and how they may shape our sense of things? Yeah, I mean, I, and I'd be I'd be interested to hear how how you see your experiences through this lens because one thing i'm conscious of is when when you start to do this kind of cultural liturgical analysis it yeah. is always highly contextual yeah do you know what i mean like in other words i'm going to sort of betray something about the 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 corner of the world that i live in right if we start talking about so um you know peloton is a cultural liturgy do you mm. know what i mean i i think without in fact i actually think do you know what I mean by Peloton? The sort of yeah, home yeah, the exercise, yeah. yeah. And and um, Peloton instructors are secular priests, yeah. and almost unapologetically so. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Sure. Yeah. And and it's this amazing sort of blend of um, kind of blessing and prophetic inducements. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. they both want to affirm you and say you can be better than you are. And and it is such a and, and the way it builds on community and makes you want to feel like you belong to someone and that you're seen and that you're known. It's a really, um, uh, like, I don't need Peloton to be my church. Yeah. But I do think a lot of people, it, it actually fills a space that for others is filled by something like church or synagogue or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. So I think that's an, um, I don't want to criticize, I don't want to, sound like I'm being flippant or dismissive if I describe something having that liturgical power because I yeah. actually think it means it's tapping into deep human longings mm -hmm. and it is it is it's trying to be an avenue to satisfy something that I think is sort of uh, built into human longing and, and desire um, consumerism I think you know I, I often say you don't become a consumerist uh, because somebody convinces you that stuff will make you happy mm -hmm. because it's, it's an insane uh, uh, theory. <laughs> Theoretically, that's just an insane idea. 
Does that mean there are no consumers in the world? No, not at all, actually. Somehow we still kind of get co-opted into imagining that -hmm. stuff could make me happy. And I think that happens through, I I think marketing is kind of, um, marketers know that we are liturgical animals. Yeah. Marketers know that we are imaginative animals. Marketers know that we are narrative animals. And so the way marketing works is it holds out visions and stories and narratives and we want to see ourselves into this version of a life and you if you're immersed in that and you're subjected to that over and over and over again we don't realize the extent to which we are buying that story mm-hmm. um but then you can think like um you know on a, on a more micro level like for example i would say for my wife and i um gardening mm-hmm. isn't just something that we do it's doing something to us yeah and 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 i could talk about that actually in a lot of ways i mean on the one hand for people who live in cities uh gardening is almost a way of encountering the earth and its rhythms and it comes with it's a deeply humbling experience because you are not the master when it comes to a garden do you know i mean you are you are a servant you are you're trying to cultivate something but so much of it depends on receptivity so there's a lot that happens there and then i then i could also say socially you know for us to undertake that work together is doing something now to this little micro community that you call our marriage or our family or whatever it might be so um it's not like I want to turn everything into a liturgy. It's just that I think so many communal and social practices have at least this liturgical accent to them because they're not just something we yeah. do. They do something to us. And I think if we, if we recognize that there's, there's both strengths and challenges to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because uh, especially like when you mentioned Peloton, it makes me think of how like the, the standard corporate gym model, like a, a chain gym is very much a liturgical space because it's cultivating this sense of, you know, first an aesthetic ideal of what our body should look like, but also the sense of discipline, the sense of sacrifice. And you can see some people get so into it that they're like, again, there's a sense that they're worshiping something. Um, yeah. But outside of that, for me, I can say from my own experience growing up, I see how, yeah, like shopping at a mall, going into a store. Um, I'm obviously not going just to buy clothes to like cover my body. It's again there's this cultivation of right. desire right. This sense of what an ideal whether an ideal person in terms of aesthetic beauty in terms of status popularity like you're going to kind of conform yourself to a certain ideal or at least that's that's how i kind of grew up when i went, went shopping like i wanted i wanted this kind of existential validation yeah. uh, so like things like, you also wanted to belong right like you wanted to yeah be no there's a communal dimension yeah But I think one of the most powerful ones, especially now, is like social media in general, but I have to say something about Instagram because it's such a visual platform. Um, Mm -hmm. It's extremely powerful because you can create your own identity. You can project your own, you can curate your own identity and like project it out into the world and you can edit it. You can, you know, you can put all these filters, all these things. You can hide the things you don't want people to see. And I have to say like, the the phases when I'm more active on the internet, especially on a social media app like Instagram, I see that it changes the way that I relate to the world around me because unlike gardening, where you have to be receptive, where there's this strong awareness that things are given, with Instagram, like and you're the curator of reality. You're the one who manipulates and designs things. And I see how like I become much more impatient when I am spending more time on there. I 
I don't pay attention to small details that, again, may seem insignificant, but have some beauty, have value in them. So they definitely shape you know, our sense of self, our sense of reality. Yes. Uh, the other one that I think is more obviously a cultural liturgy is, I would say, celebrity culture in general. Um, whether it's, whether it's I, know, I think of like award shows, especially music award shows with the performances and mm. the, the tabloids, the gossip, that I think there's this, like we're building these celebrities into deific figures who some of them we sacrifice, we cancel them, some of them, you know, we, we work, we want to aspire to be. And it's, um, it, it's fascinating, but it's also scary to think that everyday people are being turned into godlike figures when you know, they're, they're finite human beings, you know. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. And, and in that sense, you can see how perennial mm -hmm. and ancient this penchant is. We just are replaying it in new ways. Uh, um, Bill Kavanaugh likes to talk about what he calls the migrations of the holy, yep. right? Exactly. It's, not, it's not that we in modernity outgrew religion. It's that it, it migrated to these other spaces. Uh, and, and the thing that intrigues me about the kind of Instagram cultural liturgy too is it's you this is very relevant for taylor it's this weird blend of on the one hand everybody gets to project and make their own identity on the other hand it is so clearly um a dynamic of imitation right yeah. because you know you can you can sort of see the the trend right you can sort of see oh so this is what we're doing for the next six weeks and everybody now is going to do this as yeah. their way of standing out but in fact where it's actually a huge engine of conformity. Yeah. Uh, and so this, this, this paradox of broadcasting our authentic curated self yeah. that turns out to be what we saw on somebody else's feed last week. And um, that, that sounds like a, a recipe for, well, maybe not knowing who we are, right? Yeah. Like, like now we're just putting on all these different masks. And, but to me, it's also a sign that we want to be seen we want yeah. to be known. And I think that's such a fundamental human desire. I just worry that it's doomed to be constantly disappointed if that's the mode in which we're trying to satisfy it. Yeah, and that goes back to Taylor with the ethic of authenticity that, exactly. again, that it, it can be something valuable in itself, but we do need to be conscious of the fact that sometimes what we consider to be our authentic self is really us trying to emulate some ideal that somebody else has presented to us. It's, yeah, it becomes the epitome of conformism. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, and I, I have a, a, a book on St. Augustine called On the Road with St. Augustine, where um, I, I think one of the gifts that an ancient writer like Augustine offers us is a way of finding authenticity because you're liberated. You, you can be it can be liberating to actually realize that your identity can be given to you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean like it can be gifted to you? And uh, um, it's almost like it to receive that gift is to then escape the exhaustion of perpetual reinvention. Yeah. No, it's, it's free. It's more freeing than having the quote unquote freedom to make your own identity. Because yes. Yeah. It's you, now your identity is the fruit of love. Like if it's a gift, it's because somebody loves you rather than me just having to come up with some random, you know, um, but no, so the last thing I did want to ask you though, is about university cultures, because, you know, you write a lot about mm. education, about universities, and just in my own experience, um, being a university student, student teaching at universities, 
I see how much is at risk, how much is at stake for university students. Um, first, in terms of the content, but even at schools that want to, to give students, you know, a liberal arts education, form their sense of humanity, their sense of personhood, even that is not enough because, again, it's it's the small little rituals, the small things, the quote-unquote extracurriculars that really shape students' lives. And I think the fact that many university administrators, professors don't take that into account, leave students hanging, leave them with this, this profound emptiness that, um, I don't know, if we don't take that into account, we allow this bureaucratic model to really suck everything out of their experience um, of university culture. So I don't know, I'm interested in what you what you would suggest to build up university and make it more human, make it more alive. Yeah. Uh, it might look like burning down what we have, though. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you, you, I don't know. Catching me at a, I'm I'm at a, a very cynical moment in terms of just what the prospects for the university are right now. So I don't I don't want I don't want to be despairing about it. I'll, I'll say I think there are there are multiple challenges and tensions here. On the one hand, is um, as you said, I think we don't realize the extent to which all kinds of things that are never ever touched by faculty are driving formative aspects of why universities exist. So Greek culture, athletic culture, football tailgating, th these are all rampant and powerful cultural liturgies. Mm -hmm. uh, um, by the way, there's an old novel by Tom Wolfe called uh, I Am Charlotte Simmons which is a great diagnosis of exactly this kind of repertoire of deformative liturgies that comprise what a university education is today. Then the other thing that I think is, is just hamstringing us is the fact that everybody brings to a university education a completely commodified capitalist mindset in terms of what it's for. So now it's all about ROI, return on investment. What is this gonna, and so that's what's gutting yeah. Um, our, our willingness to give ourselves over to a more holistic formative education. So for the most part, I, I mean, I'm of two minds. The first is, I think it's generally going to be smaller liberal yeah. arts colleges. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. If anybody's going to have a shot at doing something holistic and intentional, I think it's probably going to either happen at small liberal arts colleges yeah. or it's going to happen with some kind of like micro community within the university community some kind of like there's there's a study center movement for example that is kind of setting up houses on university campuses or it could be you know there there could be different kinds of um residential communities that mm -hmm. get formed yeah. that could be intentional um uh i also in terms of the intellectual pursuits of the university, I'm just not sure that the university is actually going to be the best steward of intellectual curiosity going forward. Uh, um, the, 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 as you said, the bureaucratization of it, the instrumentalization of it all really does not sit well with that kind of ancient vision of wonder and uh, the, the hunger to know. And so um, I think many of us are just trying to sort of inhabit the university as loyal opposition. Mm -hmm. And I think I think as long as we can keep doing that, there will always be a pathway for those students who really want to experience mm -hmm. what the university is supposed to be. You can find it. It's just, you have to go looking and you need some friends to help guide you. Mm -hmm. And that's not the worst thing in the world. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree that I think the ideal would be these smaller scale universities, which, you know, are they're not very practical from an economic viewpoint. It's, you know, and also it, it takes more work. It, the bureaucratic model, you, you all put your responsibility onto, you know, onto the system. But for a smaller scale, like you gotta, gotta work. Um, but no, like while we're in the system, I think you're right, building community, being intentional, building relationships, all these things for those who want it, yeah, like can make a huge difference. So um yeah. there's there could yeah, be there's always there's there can always be a remnant yes so um before we go jimmy anything you want to plug anything you want to recommend to people uh just uh, maybe i would say uh look up imagejournal.org uh image is the literary and arts quarterly given our conversations about imagination and the arts and i think our shared uh some of your listeners might be interested in that Awesome. And definitely pick up a copy of Desiring the Kingdom and your newest one, How to Inhabit Time. Uh, but that being said, Jamie, thanks for coming on. Great to talk to you, Stephen. Thank you.